my brave lad, he sleeps in his faded coat of blue. In a lonely grave alone lies the heart that beats so true. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. Welcome to War of the Rebellion, Stories of the Civil War. I am your host, Leon Meowser, and this is a reading of the regimental history Under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, The Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861-1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the rank and file. We are picking up right where we left off last week, Chapter 7, this is Part 2. Forced Marches to Gettysburg. On June 26, 1863, at daylight, this pleasant encampment was broken up and forced marching was resumed by the entire corps, which again forded the celebrated Goose Creek, without doubt the crookedest stream in the world. At a temporary halt in the road this day, General Meade, the corps commander, together with General Sykes, Ayers, and Weed, appeared and seemed to be in earnest consultation. The corps reached the town of Leesburg about noon, which appeared to be a neat and clean place. This day it was learned from the inhabitants of Leesburg that General Lee's army was already in Pennsylvania, and, as an inhabitant of the town remarked, quote, they would give the people an idea of war and the way old Virginia was being treated, unquote. On June 26, 1863, the column marched at 3 o'clock a.m. At noon was at Leesburg. After a delay of an hour or two, the regiment resumed the march and, passing Ball's Bluff, crossed the Potomac on pontoons at Edwards Ferry. At this period, the regiment felt very much like encamping and certainly expected to do so, but the march continued and the column marched seven miles into Maryland and finally encamped at Poolsville. The distance accomplished by the regiment in this day's forced march was from 30 to 35 miles and was without doubt the most severe ever experienced up to that date by the regiment. Many were stragglers from absolute physical exhaustion, and at the roll call and distribution of rations at the camp at the end of the day's march, but few responded. The missing of roll call to the wearied straggler annoyed him but little, but the issue of rations missed by him added hunger to his already multiplied woes, and had a depressing effect upon his spirits. June 27, 1863 After the unusually hard march of the previous day, the regiment again moved and marched all day to within a few miles of Frederick City, having forded the Monocacy. The Valley of the Potomac, to that point, was in vivid contrast to the sandy plains and untilled fields of the Old Dominion, over which the Army of the Potomac had operated. The beautiful fields of golden grain almost ready for the reaper and the well-laden cherry trees ripe and ready for the consumer attracted the attention of all. Execution of Spy Richardson Near the end of this day's march by the various corps of the Army of the Potomac en route for Frederick, a gruesome sight was presented on a road in the suburbs of Frederick. The cavalry 
had captured on the march a man in citizen's clothes, who had been a camp follower in the corps of Hooker's army during the winter quarters in Virginia, having secured a permit to sell stationery, pens and ink, songbooks and newspapers. No one ever suspected his loyalty or that he might be a Confederate spy. He was well known to the 155th by his frequent visits to Camp Humphreys, where, during the winter, he peddled his goods. He was a cheerful, lively individual past middle age, and had a refrain which he frequently shouted to the amusement of the soldiers in response to their bidding him good morning, or asking him the condition of his health, etc., to which he always made a reply that with him, quote, everything is lovely, and the goose hangs high, unquote. The story of subsequent capture on the march to Frederick was that the cavalry guards detained him and finally, not satisfied with his explanation or references, searched him and found, concealed on his person, papers with details of the various army corps under Hooker and of their estimated strength. A drumhead court-martial was convened at night during a halt on the march, and on a hearing he was adjudged to be a spy and ordered to be hung at daylight. The individual was ever afterwards known as Spy Richardson. A placard with that inscription was tied around his body by the cavalry. Many of the 155th, in passing, recognized the features and the dress of a spy Richardson as that of the old stationary peddler, their frequent visitor in Camp Humphreys, who in invariably a linen duster and all kinds of weather. General Meade's Appointment to Command Sunday, June 28, 1863 The regiment remained this day in camp at Frederick, enjoying a well-needed rest. General Hooker, it was here learned, had been relieved from the command of the Army of the Potomac the night before by the acceptance of his resignation. General Meade, commander of the Fifth Corps, his successor, was roused from midnight sleep by a special messenger from Washington, assigning him to the command of the Army of the Potomac, this being his first intimation of the appointment. General Meade afterwards remarked that, when so summarily roused by the messenger from the War Department, instead of expecting the appointment to succeed Hooker, he feared that probably the message contained an order for his arrest or removal on unfounded charges. General Hooker's resignation was occasioned through a quarrel with General Halleck, the General-in-Chief, who refused to comply with Hooker's urgent request that the 12,000 Union troops at Harper's Ferry should be sent to join the Army of the Potomac in the coming Battle of Gettysburg. The first order General Meade issued on assuming command of the Army was to direct that the troops under General French at Harper's Ferry should immediately join his Army. General Meade's distinguished services under Generals McClellan, Burnside, and Hooker made his appointment peculiarly welcome and gratifying not only to the people of the country, but more especially to the Army of the Potomac. The Fifth Army Corps was particularly elated that their general should be selected for the high command. The change placed General George Sykes in command of the Fifth Corps, and General Romian B. Ayers succeeded to the command of Sykes' division. General Stephen H. Weed became commander of the brigade, in which the 155th was serving. General Meade, on accepting the command of the army, continued for the present all of Hooker's staff officers. Monday, June 29, 1863. General Meade, because of the enemy's operations in Pennsylvania and the panic prevailing there, did not tarry at Frederick, 
but pushed on for Pennsylvania at once to overtake the enemy, reaching on the first day's march a place called Liberty, a small village on the road leading to Pennsylvania. Many of the regiment, as a result of the severe forced marching and wading the streams, suffered from sore feet and could not wear shoes. As a general rule, the pluck and desire of the troops to participate in the impending battle sustained them and enabled them to keep up on the trying marches. Tuesday, June 30th, 1863. Marching was resumed at an early hour, passing along the road from Liberty through the village of Union Mills to Frizzlesburg. More beautiful country, with more grain ripe and ready for the harvest, heavily burdened trees of ripe cherries and fields of growing corn, unusually large red barns, and general appearances of contentment and comfortable rural life were visible on the day's march. A memorable scene which impressed all the soldiers and cheered them on as they marched along, footsore and weary, took place at Frizzleburg, Maryland. On the steps of the public school building were grouped a hundred children with flags in their hands, singing the Star-Spangled Banner and other loyal songs as the marching columns passed along. Marching still further, as the regiment advanced in towards the Pennsylvania line, the enterprising inhabitants prepared bread, pies, and cakes and also milk and bottles for sale at moderate prices to the soldiers as they passed. That any charge whatever was made by these thrifty farmers was very disappointing to the overmarched soldiers hastening to save Pennsylvania from the invasion of the Confederate army. At the end of a 28-mile march, the regiment camped this night close to the Pennsylvania line. The severe strain of these marches on the most stalwart soldier often caused blistered feet, which retarded progress. The captain of a company often, on the recommendation of the surgeon of the regiment, certified that the private soldier suffering from sore feet should be excused from duty and exempt from arrest by the provost guards following the army. One such pass to an afflicted comrade would be copied several times, signature and all, by sympathizing comrades, and distributed to messmates who, although similarly suffering, had not been fortunate enough to secure original passes. These copies, so made in most cases, passed the inspection of the provost guard as well as did the genuine passes. At the end of this day's march, the usual 60-day muster for the payrolls was made, the companies averaging only 30 muskets present in the ranks. Pennsylvania Reserves Join the Fifth Corps on the night of the 30th of June, 1863, the 5th Corps marched until near midnight. The Corps was joined on the march by the Division of Pennsylvania Reserves under command of General S.W. Crawford. They were trained veteran regiments, which had been resting and recruiting their ranks for some months in the defenses of Washington, and today overtook the 5th Corps, in which they had previously so long served. A number of these companies and regiments had been recruited in Pittsburgh. The meeting of old friends by their comrades in the 155th en route was cordial and most welcome. At many points in the march these reinforcements, rallying to the defense of their native state, elicited loud cheers and enthusiastic demonstrations. With the arrival of these troops also came the report, which was circulated all along the line, that General McClellan had been restored to the command of the Army of the Potomac and was on his way to join the army. General McClellan's name and popularity on this report was also enthusiastically received, 
but alas, it was doomed to contradiction as a mere camp rumor, as developments soon demonstrated. On Pennsylvania Soil Wednesday, July 1st, 1863, General Sykes' Division of the Fifth Corps, with the 155th, was up early and started on the march soon after daylight, and at the end of an hour's travel, the state line between Pennsylvania and Maryland was reached. Striking Pennsylvania soil awakened a different spirit, probably more natural than on any previous campaigns as the troops, and particularly Pennsylvania regiments, deemed the Confederate invasion an aggregation of their offense in fighting the flag of the Union. As a consequence, despite the great fatigue from the forced marches, loss of sleep and other privations, speaking for the 155th men, it can be truly said that on reaching the Keystone State, their determination to fight to the bitter end was most marked, and no signs of doubt of the result were visible anywhere in the ranks. Disappointment, however, was experienced on crossing the state line that these feelings were not more cordially reciprocated by their fellow Pennsylvanians and the persons of the first inhabitants of the state met by the advancing columns of the Union Army. So far from welcoming them, or displaying any sense of gratitude to the men in the ranks ready to die in the defense of the Union and of Pennsylvania, the first inhabitants, met by the columns as they marched by, were engaged at the various roadsides selling fresh milk and bottles to soldiers at ten cents a pint, and fresh bread and cakes and pies and buttermilk at proportionate prices. These mercenary people, so engaged were in many cases young athletic farmer boys who, many soldiers thought, were capable and should have been willing to take guns and to harass the invading columns of Lee, instead of turning the sad incident of the war to making money from the unfortunate, footsore, and overmarched Union soldiers. Many of the first inhabitants of Pennsylvania thus met by the Union army also seemed densely ignorant about the war for the Union or anything else. In the most unsophisticated manner, they protested against the action of General Jenkins, the Confederate cavalry leader, who had passed through that section a few days before, impressing cattle and horses for the use of his own command, without asking or securing the consent of the rural owners of the same. These injured citizens, in their complaint to Union soldiers following Jenkins' operations, asserted that his treatment was incomprehensible to them, as they were really his friends. That is, they had never done anything against the Confederates to justify such discourteous treatment. Jenkins, they said, had given in exchange for their fine horses he had carried off, the broken-down and jaded beasts of the Confederate riders, which these farmers said were not worth their feeding. Not a few of the soldiers, and among them a number of the 155th, thought it but fair to patronize these milk and pie vendors. The able-bodied young farmers and their wives, all apparently living in affluence, judging by the size of their great barns and fine dwellings, so they ordered canteens of milk and fine rolls of butter in the most lavish manner, caring nothing for expense. When their orders were filled, these soldiers found themselves in a very great hurry to rejoin their commands, being thus often prevented from handing over the necessary change to their avaricious rustics. The excited milk and pie vendors were, however, assured by the hungry soldiers that the United States government would carefully pay for the milk, pies, bread, butter, and other articles thus obtained. If any dispute 
arose about the amounts to let the soldiers of the 155th Pennsylvania know when they would, quote, okay, unquote, their bills. Nearing Gettysburg. Night marching. The marching this day was brisk, and the suffering of the men from heat and blistered feet was great. About noon, General Sykes' division reached the town of Hanover, York County, in the streets of which the day previous there had been heavy skirmishing between the advanced cavalry of both armies. Many signs of the severity of this cavalry engagement were still visible. Dead horses killed in the skirmishing with the enemy still lay on the streets. Several buildings bore the marks of artillery shots, while others presented evidences of the shots of cavalry carbines. All the remainder of the day, there could be heard in the advanced cannonading, indicating that fighting had begun in earnest, and, with renewed vigor, the marching from Hanover was resumed. A few miles beyond the town, orders were received, just before sunset, to go into camp and halt for the night. This order was most welcome to fatigued troops, and a camp bivouac on the hillside was promptly laid out in companies by each regiment. All the arrangements were made, and expectations for at least receiving a much-needed rest, preparatory to which, and an early retirement, the troops engaged in cooking their coffee and other foods for their evening meal. This plain repast had hardly been finished by all the regiments when a scene occurred which changed all the plans in the minds of the troops for a good night's rest, and compelled the immediate resumption of the forced march, lasting until midnight. The incident alluded to consisted in Colonel P.H. O'Rourke, the 140th New York Volunteers, accompanied by a courier from General Hancock, riding into the bivouac on the hillside. The courier and his horse, covered with foam, attracted the attention of all in the temporary camp as he rode up with Colonel O'Rourke and dismounted at General Sykes' headquarters. This courier was the bearer of dispatches conveying the ominous news that the Union and Confederate armies had encountered each other outside of the town of Gettysburg and had battled during the entire day, that the Union advance under Generals Buford and Reynolds had been repulsed and driven back to the town of Gettysburg, that General Reynolds had been killed early in the battle, also that it was absolutely necessary that the Fifth Corps troops should press on by a night march to Gettysburg to hold the place and the enemy in check. Within five minutes from the delivery of this important message, the bugles of each brigade and regiment sounded the orders to pack up, and in not over ten minutes each regiment was in line to obey the orders. The sad news of the battle, the sounds of the cannonading that they had heard during the day, and the disasters to the Union arms reported by the courier's dispatch to General Sykes became well known but with little delay to the troops, and worn out as they had been the long march of the day, they cheerfully and promptly obeyed the orders requiring them to fall in for the resumption of the march by night, not a man of the 155th faltering. The march by slow and easy stages thus resumed, continued until midnight, passing through McSherry Town and other villages. Along the road, this night the troops were treated well. The people along the line of march distributed bread and pies freely to the troops, Along the line of march at the occasional short halts, the troops learned more particulars of the death of General Reynolds and the advance encounter with the Confederate forces. On this night's march, the objective was the town of Gettysburg, where the fighting had taken place. The tired columns halted at 1 o'clock a.m. 
too fatigued for further marching, and orders were given for the troops to lie down on the road itself instead of deploying into the nearby fields. This was but a temporary halt, and orders were issued that about three hours' sleep would be allowed before marching resumed. French leave. Prisoners released to enter the battle. An episode worthy of mention occurred at the midnight halt, which concerns three well-known comrades of Company Du, all of whom have long since passed away. Two of these comrades, William Jones and Daniel Haney, were mere boys in their teens, and all fearless soldiers. They had become homesick with a monotonous, wearisome march through Maryland to Gettysburg, and openly expressed their intention to take a, quote, French leave, unquote, for their home in Pittsburgh as soon as they would strike the Pennsylvania line. The third one of the trio was the redoubtable James Finnegan, of the same company who, as he had a wife and several children living within the borders of Pennsylvania, was found in just the humor to pay a visit to the family with or without the leave of his superiors. The comrades, named, carried their threats into execution, promptly on crossing the state line by throwing away their guns and accruements, and defying anyone to stop them from leaving the ranks for their homes. Captain Kilgore accepted the challenge and ordered the arrest of the three worthies for insubordination, mutiny, and attempted desertion, and placed guards around the offending comrades. During the long, forced marches, the prisoners, relieved of gun and accoutrement, had much the best of the guards escorting them, the latter being weighted down with the gun, bayonet, and sixty rounds of cartridges. At the midnight halt, in the middle of the road, from the faithful ranks of those who had trudged along the exhaustive, lengthy day's march, a detail of four privates was ordered to report for the ignoble and disgusting duty of serving as guards over the prostrate and sleeping forms of the three prisoners reposing in a fence corner. At that hour, and for that duty, the wearied guards almost mutinied. On reporting, it was found that Sergeant Forty Shahan, of Company I, was to be placed in charge of the important detail. He was impressed with the absurdity of such duty over three prisoners who were too tired to escape even if they desired to do so. The genial sergeant, destined later to fall in battle, directed the guards to follow his example by spreading their ponchos on the ground and enjoying a good and badly needed rest, sleeping until called for duty. His example was followed, and neither guards nor prisoners were disturbed or aroused until daylight, when the sound of distant artillery was heard and the regiment was ordered to resume the march for Gettysburg, twelve miles distant, the scene of the preceding day's battle. The charges and specifications against the three prisoners were promptly withdrawn, as they each demanded release and privilege to go into the fight with their company, which they did, all serving credibly. Opening of Battle of Gettysburg As is well known, on the morning of July 1st, as the Confederate armies were complying with the orders to concentrate at Gettysburg, their advanced columns under General A.P. Hill a short distance out of Gettysburg, encountered the advanced pickets and skirmishers of the Union Cavalry under General John Buford, whose men dismounted and in that capacity resisted and held back for several hours the line of battle of the advancing Confederates. The skirmishing thus commenced to open the three days' battles of the contending armies under Lee and Meade at Gettysburg, ending on the night of July 4th in the complete retreat of the Confederate forces. 
This history is necessarily confined to the movements and actions of the 155th Pennsylvania Volunteers in the campaign now under consideration. It becomes necessary, however, for a proper understanding of the operations of the regiment to embrace at times the itinerary and descriptions as well as the positions occupied by the four regiments comprising Weed's Brigade and the two brigades of regulars associated as components of General Ayer's division all under command of General Sykes of the 5th Army Corps. This is now mentioned to account for the fact that space in this volume would not permit an adequate or full description of the three great battles fought on July 1st, July 2nd, and July 3rd, respectively at Gettysburg, and the fourth great battle fought by the cavalry of both armies, which in itself was conceded to be the greatest cavalry engagement of the war. The reader is referred to the admirable work of the Comte de Paris occupying an entire volume devoted to a description of the Great Battle of Gettysburg, including the Great Cavalry Encounter, which is considered to be a most accurate and thorough description of the operations at Gettysburg of the various corps of both the Union and the Confederate armies. The Comte de Paris, a graduate of the great French military college, Saussure, the West Point of France, was permitted by the French government to accept service during the Civil War in the United States Army. With his brother, Duke de Joinville, he rendered efficient service in the Pennsylvania Campaign, participating in all the severe actions of that period, an experience especially qualifying him to describe military operations. Chapter 8 The Battle of Gettysburg which is what we will pick up next week. Assembled a ton of information out on this episode. So let's get started. There's a lot to talk about here. Uh, obviously, if you want to see some of the info laid out for yourself that I'm going to be talking about, you can head to my website, rebellionstories.com, and click on the post. I'm thinking I'm going to title it Chapter 7, Return to Camp Humphreys, Forced Marches. Let's get to the episode. So this entire campaign so far that we're covering is them just marching. And this is so brutal for the soldiers. Um, I wanted to go out and find a way to talk about it, about these marches. And luckily, CivilWarTrails.org exists. If you haven't heard of them, they create walking and driving trails of the armies and other campaigns moved across the countryside. So I'm going to include a link for them on rebellionstories.com. Oh my gosh, you should definitely check them out. They had an interactive map that I was playing around with. However, I'm going to go ahead and link also the Gettysburg Campaign Guide so you can easily use it. You'll be able to see uh, where the armies were moving and a lot of the towns that they talk about in this episode. There are several minor battles that happened throughout this march, and I'm going to highlight just a few. Uh, Goose Creek Bridge and the Battle of Upperville, just because some of the players who involved is pretty interesting. It's going to be on the website in the post. But can we talk about a spy who had a catchphrase about hanging high and then ends up getting hung? I looked into this, and this is a wild story, okay? Check this out. Apparently his name was George William Richardson, and he was from Baltimore, and he had some sons in the Confederate Army, 
And thousands upon thousands of Union troops knew this dude. So let me read you a quote that expands on this story, and it's from a different regimental history. This is from the regimental history, the story of our regiment, a history of the 148th Pennsylvania Volunteers, by J.W. Muffley, page 469. Quote, During the winter of 1862 and 1863, while the Army of the Potomac was encamped at Fredericksburg, Virginia, a Mr. Richardson, a Virginian, frequently came into our camps selling war maps, soldiers' medals, and stencil plates to the soldiers bearing their names, company, and regiment to ensure identification if killed in battle for the information of friends at home. This individual made a tour through our camps just before the Chancellorsville campaign, and one shortly before we started on the Gettysburg campaign. The next and last time he was seen, the army was at Frederick City on July 6th, when he was recognized as a resident Virginian. Here he was suspected and arrested as a spy by men of French's division of the 2nd Corps, tried, found guilty, and immediately hung to the branch of a tree in a field to the right and within a few rods of the road, about a mile out of town. He was a brave, daring rebel spy and had successfully spied for the Confederate Army for a long time and there were very few men in the 148th who had not bought something from him. They all knew him. Captain Goldsboro of Frederick, Maryland, who was an officer of the court-martial, wrote me on October 8, 1902, stating that the evidence consisted of papers found hidden in his boots. The papers, it was said, described the strength, equipments, movements, and position of the Army of the Potomac. So this guy was selling dog tags to every unit, and then knew what unit there was and how many people is brazen. That's, they left him, by the way, they left him up on that tree for days and days and all of his clothes was stolen. And the tree that he was from, hung from had a bunch of the bark stripped off as souvenirs. And I mean, this is a wild story. Apparently he was suspected of being a spy because he was originally with the wagon train and he left those to keep traveling with the army or around the army. And that's when he got picked up. I'm not sure. This guy also, I'm also not sure how much of a trial he got. It seems like General Buford just had him hanged, but union sources say he did have a trial. Others say that he confessed or they were assured he confessed and Confederate sources say he was executed without trial. So not exactly sure what happened. Maybe there's something in the official history somewhere. But apparently, his body is somewhere out there. They don't know where it's at. So it's somewhere buried under where he was hung. And it might be under a road now. There's so much that happens in this episode. I just need to take a moment every time they talk about something. Also, this man's... Just before we leave, just one more time. This man's catchphrase was, Everything is lovely and the goose hangs high. Moving on. I'm just going to say this. Soldiers forging documents while on the march seems incredibly impressive to trick the provost guard. I thought it was quite hilarious. General Hooker getting fired for wanting the troops from Hopper's Ferry to rejoin the army and then getting fired over it. And then Meade turning around as soon as he takes command, issuing that exact same order had me just rolling. The McClellan ru rumor of him taking command. I loved that. 
and Meade thinking he was getting fired or arrested when he woke up in the middle of the night. Oh my goodness. I'll put a link to like a profile for him somewhere in the, uh, on the page. History is just so messy. There's so much politics literally brimming underneath it. And when you just peel the layers like an onion, it kind of is there stewing. Uh, the citizens being mad about getting their horses traded for terrible horses or outright stolen. Uh, I found that amusing. Soldiers not paying the citizens over food they were buying. Can you imagine you sell like 30 pies and every single soldier's like, uh, yeah, bro. Um, the U.S. government's totally going to pick up the tab. Don't worry about it. Like, or I'll pay you later. <laughs> these dudes, man, these <laughs> soldiers are soldiers. I'll tell you what. Like, this episode had it all. Like, there's a children's choir. All right. Anyway, they talk about the Battle of Hanover. Um, and I've went ahead and linked it. It's a gnarly little battle with Custer and Stewart. Battlefields.org has a great article on it, so I'm just going to post that for you guys if you want to learn more about it. Or, of course, you just Wikipedia it or something. But finding out you're getting bad news the closer to a battle. So for the 155th, that messenger rides into camp when they're going to kind of bed down for the night. And the horse is foaming at the mouth. And it's like, no, you guys got to go. Like, goodness gracious. But having them lay down in the street classic veteran move veterans can sleep anywhere on anything anytime and i admire so much from these guys during this period as infantry for that also if we're going to get recommended the battle of gettysburg from the history of the civil war in america by the count de paris if it's recommended i'm going to track it down and i'm going to put it down and link it on my website of course, you can find it on the Library of Congress, but if you want to look for it, it's going to be right there for you. You'll be able to find it on the uh, same page with all this information I'm going to have on here. But with that, with my friends, I am going to say have a great week. I will see you in the next episode. Don't forget to like, subscribe, give me some five stars if you can. It helps people find the podcast. Don't forget to visit my website at rebellionstories.com. You can also send me corrections or emails to War of Rebellion at gmail.com and I'll see you guys next time bye-bye they will find him and know him amongst the good and true when a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue no more the bugle calls the weary one Rest, noble spirit, in thy grave alone. They will find you and know you amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. He cried, give me water and just one little crumb. And my mother, she will bless you through all the years to come. Go tell my sweet sister, so gentle, good, and true, that I'll meet her up in heaven, not in my faded coat of blue. No.
know you amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded 